Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 394 of the Sound Studs Podcast. I'm Kurt, joined this week, sort of, by my co-host, Peter. Um, you see, holiday travel, with it being Thanksgiving week in the U.S. here, where we are located, made uh, seeing something for the show and sitting down and recording it very difficult. So what we decided to do is kind of in the tradition of a Thanksgiving meal where everyone you know, bring something, and it's something of a potluck. Uh, we were each going to go out and review something, and then we'd kind of stitch together to be a somewhat cohesive presentation. Unfortunately, Jake did not get a chance to do his, and I've had the kind of pivot to mind. So this will be interesting. Um, but uh, we have two separate reviews here, and I'm going to throw it to Peter, in just a second here, who reviewed The Holdovers, which is the boarding school holiday comedy hijinks thing starring Paul Giamatti. And um, we'll see what he has to say about that on this exciting episode of the Sound Sense podcast. Hey, everybody. So um, for my portion of our, uh, our kind of anthology divide and conquer edition this week, um, I chose the holdovers, um, which came out a couple weeks ago as my, uh, movie this week. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a few good movies that came out this week, but I, I didn't think I want to see any movie this week except this one. Um, I remember as soon as we saw the first trailer, I kind of looked at it and like, well, this could be bad, but, um, I I believe in this. I think it's got the it's got the chutzpah, the the whatever you want um, to really make it. Um, and wow, wowie wowie, was I right? Um, so I went to see this like what Tuesday, um, and it was not really a packed theater, uh, which was a shame because. <laughs> This movie was so good. Um, maybe it, just because it had been out for a couple weeks, but it was already out of some theaters. It was really a shame. Um, no, this movie is, I would say, fantastic. Good to fantastic. Um, it's an absolute, like, I called it just a, a nostalgia bomb. It takes you right back to uh, a time... <laughs> it takes me back to, like my uh my grandma's house or my great aunt's house um it's a very nostalgic film for me even though i never lived in that time period so this takes place in like the 1970s um i never i didn't i actually didn't grow up in the 70s i'm not um i'm i'm a young spry man of like 30 right now um but i lived a lot in that kind of setting um this movie is set in the the northeast New England kind of area um in the early 70s late 60s um private school kind of area so it's it's this very like quiet cold rural sort of setting and i'm sure there's a lot of people who probably don't relate to that but um 
from the setting, the set dressing to the interiors, the exteriors, the travel, it all feels way too familiar for me. Um, and I think that combines with the acting and the performances and, and the plot really, um, to create, uh, this really cozy mood, something where you can just, I, I imagine if I wasn't in a theater watching this, which it was fine to watch in a theater, but if I wasn't watching this in a theater, I would watch it. I would put it on at home right around Christmas time. Um, and I would cozy up with like a comforter blanket on the couch and something hot to drink and a bowl of popcorn. Um, it just really has that mood, that kind of a mood. Um, so the movie stars uh, Paul Giamatti, uh, Dominic Sessa, and uh, Divine Joy Randolph, and they're really like the main three um, cast in this. Um, the movie, I, I'll. This is probably going to be a little, little bit of spoilers because I want to talk about the whole movie. Um, but it, before I get into that, um, these three are like the main uh, three protagonists. It's really the story about them. Um, in the school over the holidays. So Paul Giamatti is uh, the professor of ancient studies, Professor Hunnam. Um, he's the the crotchety old uh, walleye, where none of the kids like him because he's always a hard ass on him, and he's always he's that kind of guy who drops your D minus on your desk and then jokes about it to your face. I'm sure everyone has had a professor like that. Um, Dom Sessa is Angus Tully, who's the, he's kind of the coming of age, uh, classic protagonist. You know, he's smart, he's thoughtful, but he's, he's misguided and he's kind of lost his way. And the whole movie is, a lot of the movie is about him, um, finding his own path and, and getting into that. And then, um, Divine is playing Mary Lamb, who is the the school uh, cook, and she has her own path that kind of runs parallel to um, the other two as she's processing the, uh, she has to come to terms and process the grief of her uh, deceased son. Uh, the general kind of overview of the plot um, is these three are stuck at uh, the Barton School, as the winter break takes everyone else away, except for them and a couple other kids. Um, and it's really a, it's, it's really a classic coming of age story, almost in the way that like rom-coms are template movies. This is also absolutely a template movie. Um, and, <laughs> but it, this one works for me. Whereas like, I, I've seen way too many, um, rom-com movies where it's just the same exact plot. And this really is a similar plot to a lot of coming-of-age movies where it's, um, you know, the two or three people that don't like each other, they're stuck in the bottle, and they have to learn to uh, get along, and they learn each other's perspectives, and their their view of the world opens up, you know. And for Tully's case, um, he, he has to learn to sort out, well, he doesn't have to learn. He has to, um, yeah, I guess I guess he has to go through that path 
of um, sorting out the emotions, the tumult of emotions that are in his home life. Because, you know, he has a newly remarried mom and a dad who's out of the picture. um, And and neither of them want to have him with them for for Christmas. Um, So he's trying to come to terms with, like, who he is and um, who he is in relation to his family, you know. Um, Paul Giamatti as the, as Professor Tuttum, um, kills it. He slays it. He's awesome. Uh, he really perfectly portrays that just an absolute dork of a guy, um, where he'll, he's just all about his work. He's just, he's so engrossed in his ancient studies and his mystery that like, it's it's a 70s so it's a little more understandable but like he's never seen a show he's never seen like the newlywed show on tv because he doesn't have a tv he doesn't watch tv like his hobby is like mystery novels and doing more academic work um just a totally in the books guy and paul giamatti obviously um has really he does a really good job of um portraying what's a fairly dry movie it's not like a slapstick laugh a minute kind of movie but he really brings a lot of levity uh and a lot and a lot of humor to to the character um just by making him uh he, he makes him kind of the uh the funny man and then lets lewis tully be the or not lewis tully think <laughs> the ghostbusters um lets angus tully be the straight man so he gets to be the one who has all the ridiculous uh, reactions and um, out there kind of uh, performance, which definitely works. Um, I don't know what uh, Dominic Sessa's comedy chops are. Um, I don't imagine there there's a huge list there, um, but they work really well off of each other. Um, it's that classic odd couple antagonism that is ripe to drive so much good comedy and so much well-written and well-acted scenes, performances, laughs, all that jazz. Um, There's a a couple really good scenes that show off um, Paul Giamatti's humor where, like, there's one that's just, he's just in the snow, and he he picks up a football, and he just can't throw it for shit. Like, he throws it, like, three feet. Uh, he absolutely borks the thing. Um, and it's just, he has the worst form I've ever seen. And everyone, and uh, immediately, there weren't, a, again, there weren't a lot of people in the audience, but everybody erupted as soon as he, he just threw that ball and just fell right in front of him. Um, the other one was, he's at like a bowling alley. And he's sitting next to cross from these two like Bostonian dudes. Um, and they're talking about nine pin and like the history, you know, oh, nine pin versus, uh, or is that candle pin versus 10 pin, something like that. And how, you know, he's angry with all these 10 pinners coming in thinking they can run the place. And then like, uh, Tunham turns to them and like starts quoting Latin from some dusty, <laughs> dusty old textbook that, uh, no one has ever read except for him. And he's going just like three miles over their heads, and they just stare at him like he has like he has two heads, 
because he just he wanted to be in the conversation, but he had nothing relevant to say, so he just interjected with his own thing. Um, and I I appreciate that energy very very much. Um, it's yeah the the setting is is really human, and the the performances are <laughs> really human. the design is very human. Um, no, but, um, I, I believe, yes, it was, um, let's see, Alexander Payne, I believe I said was the uh, director here. Yeah. Um, and he does, he does a fantastic job at, at putting the stories together. And I was like, what, what has he done before? And he's done a few things, but the one I most remember him from, Oh, maybe not even California King. Maybe I was thinking of Little Miss Sunshine. Um, so maybe I actually don't know him from a lot of stuff. This might actually, looking now, this is probably actually my first exposure to Alexander Payne. Um, and I really like the way he develops his characters. Um, there's a lot of scenes where um, you, you have this feeling like in a more conventional movie, um, you would have scenes be part of a character's arc like professor tunham um he's he's single and he doesn't have any kind of love interest and there's um miss lydia who is a person who's really nice to him in the office and in a more traditional movie you'd be like oh you know what they're gonna end up falling in love um he doesn't believe in himself he's not self-confident but she sees him she sees the the good in him and you know they'll they'll fall in in romance um and it kind of starts going that way it starts going that way and you wonder will they won't they and it comes to a holiday party on christmas eve and you know she says hi and they sit down and as he's sitting on the couch he looks over and who comes in but lydia's boyfriend and they kiss and hug and he kind of looks right at the camera and goes oh well um and it's that very real kind of disappointment that you know oh i you know maybe i was <laughs> maybe i was a little right and cautious um not to jump into this like it's like it's a rom-com um it's those very real moments and and he doesn't even it doesn't affect you know it doesn't um put his character into a a deep funk or a fog you know he's a little sad obviously um but it doesn't change the arc of his his growth and the arc of his story it's just one little kind of vignette and it's you know like actual rejection it's something that everyone uh you kind of get over after a while you know it you understand you you're glad that it didn't <laughs> that maybe it didn't go horribly wrong and and then you move on um and a lot of the all the characters arcs kind of go like that where they um they complete the most important parts of um their story you know for for paul tom it's it's standing up for himself um and kind of coming into his own coming out of his shell um for angus tully it's um coming to understand the perspective of of him and and of his um parents and that he is, you know, he's his own person and who he really is and um trying not to to 
fall into other people's expectations of him, especially when those are those expectations are reductive. And then um, again with Mary Lamb, I I don't talk. I haven't talked about her so much because she's sort of a she's sort of a supporting character, but she's also part of the main three. Um, and that she has her own story to go through, talking about her son, and she doesn't want to open up to her family um, and have to process that grief all over again. Um, but she ends up going to see them, and um, she ends up working through that, and she's so much happier for it. Um, it's a story about all these three kind of um, incomplete people <laughs> who are these kind of broken characters who are all trying to figure out their way. And it's something that I think a lot of people can relate to. It's it's very uh, humane and and down to earth kind of storytelling. Um, as we see these people find their own in a way that, you know, maybe we feel that we can find our own way um, by by treating ourselves with a little love and respect. I don't know. Um, just yeah, excellent movie. Um, absolutely killer vibes, great performances all around. Um, I actually didn't get into spoilers, which was pretty amazing. Um, I would honestly say, uh, if you have not seen this, go see it, especially now between Thanksgiving and Christmas. <coughs> um, and then... I know I'm going to grab it and it's going to be a, a Christmas playlist classic. Like this is going up there with, with Rudolph and um, Muppets Christmas Carol. Um, it is rated R just cause there's like a couple nudity scenes, but that's fine. It's really not a problem. Um, this is it. The, the book, the movie is like an adaptation of one of those really good books that you read in English class in high school. Um, one of those really expressive, really, you know, American classic kind of stories that has you thinking and reflecting and, I don't know, maybe it'll impact your life a little bit. I don't know, maybe I'm overstating that, but um, it's one that will uh, really leave an impact on you if you're, if you're into coming-of-age stories and into, um, you know, human nostalgia, you know, nostalgic human tales from the heart, I guess. Um, oh, that's what I was going to say. It feels like, you know, it feels like a, a high school book that was going to get banned for one random scene where, you know, something adult happens. And it's like, no, you're going to ban, like, an American classic because of, like, the one nudity scene in it or whatever? Get out of here. Um, so don't let that discourage you. Um, Definitely just go watch this movie. Go watch this movie, put it in your collection, and any time that it's cold and wintry and you need to cuddle up to a movie, check this one out. All right? For the, uh, for the Saturn Studs, this is Peter signing off. Be well. Uh, stay safe and party like it's 1995. Peace. All right. Thank you, Peter, for that review of The Holdovers. Sounds like it was a pretty good time. And, uh, you know, I might have to check that one out myself. Uh, now I'm going to throw it to myself, I guess, and my review of Bethesda Softworks' latest game, Starfield. I know I've kind of touched on it before, but this is my final full review of the game. And uh, let's throw it to Pass Kurt and see what he has to say about it.
on this special Thanksgiving episode of the Sound Says Podcast, I will be re- reviewing um, a game I've been playing for a while, uh, Starfield. Finally got to a point where I can consider myself finished with the game and give it a fair assessment of quality and all that sort of stuff. So um, this is going to be a bit of a complicated review for me because Starfield, um, it makes me feel like a hypocrite in some ways because I'll, I'll say it up front, I enjoyed the game. And I've got, I've got like uh, almost five days of playtime in Starfield. So I'm not, I'm not coming at this obviously with how long it's been since review uh, since the game dropped I'm not coming at this with a uh, incomplete perspective I'm very aware of Starfield's uh, systems and mechanics and uh, I've experienced pretty much most of what the game has to offer obviously it is there's a lot of stuff to to do in Starfield, and the reason I'm saying that kind of weirdly is because, like, there's there's a lot of stuff to do, but not all of it is stuff you're going to want to do, and a lot of it is kind of the same old, like, copy and paste kind of mission structures. So, um, I think we we can start with the presentation. Starfield looks and plays a lot like Fallout Four or Fallout seventy six or any of the newer uh, Bethesda games or any of the Bethesda games that came out on last-gen hardware into the current generation of systems. Um, It doesn't take a huge leap forward graphically. It looks okay. Like, it doesn't look bad graphically, but for a game that was in development for so long and has, you know, the performance that it had on launch... uh, on the PC at least, and, you know, I think it only targeted 30 frames per second on the uh, Series X, so, like, it, the performance wasn't great, and if the performance isn't going to be great, you would hope that the reason the performance isn't great is because they were really pushing the envelope graphically, but I don't feel that they really did that. Uh, Cyberpunk 2077, which came out three years prior, looks so much better and it looked better at launch not even with like the path tracing update and all that but starfield the performance is pretty bad it's much better after the recent patch that added in uh native support for dlss uh not that fsr2 was terrible but the visual quality of dlss upscaling is much much better than the fsr2 upscaling not that fsr2 is bad and like I was, I was fine using FSR two, um, but it, I don't know if FSR two doesn't run quite as well on NVIDIA hardware. That would make sense, right? Because it's designed by AMD for AMD chips. Even if it is universal in its ability to be applied, it, I'm sure it preferentially favors AMD hardware. Um, but that increased the performance a little bit. It never ran terrible for me. Like, I was able to maintain above 60 FPS, but that's with, um, you know, uh, really aggressive 
super sampling, like with native render resolutions of 50% native. Um, I was able to usually hit around 90 to 100 FPS, which is, is kind of where I like to stick on games. Um, it, uh, it ran okay in that regard for me. Gameplay-wise, again, very similar to all your regular Bethesda fare. I'll compare it a lot to Fallout 4 because it does borrow quite a bit from Fallout 4 uh, mechanically, though not necessarily always better for the better. Like, um, settlement building is back. You can build outposts, which manage resources. Uh, you can basically uh, network together a lot of outposts to... Uh, you know, create essentially a factory where you're creating valuable resources. And this is a great way to level up and gain money. Unfortunately, past a certain point, leveling up and gaining additional money doesn't matter too much unless you're really into shipbuilding, which I am. Uh, shipbuilding, I think, was my favorite part of Starfield. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a clunky interface, but it is still uh, really cool that you have this sandbox ability to kind of build ships. I like building ships modeled after other ships in video games that I like playing. Like, uh, I built a Normandy replica. I built an Evan Hawk replica. I built a Klingon uh, warship replica. That's been my main ship for most of the run there. And um, it's fun to mess around with ships. But again... Your reward for building a really awesome ship is kind of minimal. Like, there is a point in the end game where it's important to have a strong ship, but there aren't a lot of ship combat. There's not a lot of emphasis on ship combat as a core mechanic outside of a couple of quest lines. It's there, and you should have a decent ship, but I don't feel like you're really... If, if ship building and ship combat is your thing, I don't think there's a real satisfying payoff to it. And I think that's that kind of sums up Starfield in a nutshell. There's a lot of fun things to do and sink your time in, but there isn't always a satisfying payoff for it. And it's very easy to kind of get bogged down in tedium. Like, you could sit down and play Starfield for about three hours and still feel like you didn't accomplish anything, which is kind of a mark against it. And a lot of that has to do with loading screens. There are so many fucking loading screens in Starfield. It's insane. This is a game that requires to be installed on an SSD, which I couldn't fathom trying to play this on a hard drive. It would have been, it would be insane. It would be an absolutely insane endeavor because there's so many loading screens and even with a really fast Gen 4 or Gen 3, I don't think my motherboard supports Gen 4, but with a really fast Gen 3 uh, NVMe drive, still like had to go through all these loading screens and it's jarring. Uh, it's not a particularly modern uh, game design, but I don't know that you can really expect super modern game design from a company that insists on using like a 22 year old game engine that's just been, you know, modified and is now held together with fucking duct tape and bubble gum. Uh, as far as glitches go, probably the, one of the better Bethesda titles I played at launch. I did play with some mods installed that addressed a few bugs, but for the most part, it was pretty playable outside of the box, out of the box, rather. Um, and there there wasn't too much to say about that. Uh, the main story. The main story is okay. So you're, you're a miner. 
Uh, you're running a miner job. You you can kind of create your own backstory, but you end up running a mining job, and uh, you uncover this artifact, or you're paid to uncover this artifact. And pirates attack your mining colony, but uh, this guy from a group called Constellation shows up and uh, helps you defend your your encampment with the help of his robot and says, oh, you got to take, take this ship and go back to uh, New Atlantis, which is the major hub city in the game, and, uh, you know, deliver this artifact to Constellation. Uh, I think Constellation was the one who financed the dig. Uh, and so you're introduced to Constellation, which is an explorer, explorer group with the goal of discovering the purpose of these artifacts and exploring known space. And this is where I kind of really... The, the quality of the writing in this game is not very high. And the writer has a very specific idea of what your character should be like. And if you try to go against that idea, you are pretty harshly punished uh, most of your companions, with a couple of exceptions, are members of Constellation. And pretty much everyone in Constellation is like all awful good goody two-shoes um, who like just gets on your case or anything even slightly like uh, duplicitous. Except there's one major exception to that where <laughs> I... Uh, I, I guess because you don't have a choice, but you resolve a quest and you end up having to kill someone and everyone pats you on the back for it. Despite if you kill like or blow up like a civilian ship or, or something like they get super fucking mad at you. Um, and it's really annoying, especially one of your first companions you you get. Uh, Sarah Morgan is her personality. She's the biggest fucking wet blanket in the settled systems. And um, let's just say I'm happy the fate that befell her befell her. And uh, that's about as spoiler as I will get uh, in this review. Um, so I didn't care for a lot of the companion characters. Uh, the quest lines, some of them were very interesting and well-written. And it's, it's kind of like most Bethesda games where... Uh, the main story is, I think this actually had a more interesting main story than most Bethesda titles. Um, so as you progress and collect more artifacts, you're introduced to this faction called the Starborn, uh, who have advanced technology and mysterious powers um, like you've been getting from temples. I kind of skipped over that because I didn't really mess around with the powers too much. Um, so a lot of the, the second half of the game has to do with uncovering the nature of the Starborn and, you know, ultimately determining what's going on with these artifacts, why you should play them, uh, why you should bother collecting them. And then you get into the end, which uh, the end feeds into the New Game Plus system, which I haven't played around too too much with. Um, but I will say that I don't feel New Game Plus is super worth it all the time. Um that being said, overall, Starfield is a game that is definitely flawed in its execution, and it doesn't really uh, bear a lot of the hallmarks of a game that's been in development as long as it has. But at the same time, it's a brand new IP, so I was a lot more forgiving of some of the choices made than I would have been if it were a Elder Scroll or Fallout sequel, because those games have kind of established canons and lores. This one kind of created from the ground up, and it was to mixed results. Some of the lore I found very interesting, some of it not so much. Um, 
planetary explorations kind of boring. I think a lot of that has to do with um, just there's so many planets and planetary traversal is very slow. I would have liked them to introduce like a vehicle system where you could kind of move around planets faster, but it takes forever to move around on the planets, uh, which is kind of a downer. Seeing as how it's one of the main mechanics of the game. Um, and a lot of the points of interest are recycled, like Dragon Age 2 style, same environments, same enemy placements, same layouts. Um, loot is not very consistent. Sometimes stuff behind locked doors and is just like junk. And sometimes you pull <coughs> excuse me, an armor with better stats than your legendary set off some random spacer. Enemies sometimes scale to your level, sometimes don't, so it solves that kind of progression paradigm that was an issue with Skyrim and other Bethesda titles. Um, Gunplay's okay. A lot of the guns kind of feel samey between classes. Like, there's laser weapons, there's uh, ballistic weapons, and there's particle beam weapons. Each weapon category has pistols, shotguns, and rifles in it. And for the most part, they all feel kind of similar. The gunplay is pretty good. It hasn't evolved uh, dramatically since Fallout 4. So if you were hoping for major improvements there, you're going to be disappointed. Skill trees are very Fallout 4-esque, for better or for worse. Um, I do prefer uh, challenges to go to the next skill points versus the whole older Bethesda system of just having to do that thing over and over again to get better at it, which... Yes, is more immersive, but does not necessarily make for great gameplay. Uh, there's no level cap, though. So if you have a good enough outpost, you can power level all the way and be be great at everything. It takes a while to uh, do enough of the challenges to, to level up. So it kind of kind of um, keeps keeps pace in that way. But it has a similar problem to all Bethesda games, where if you can do everything uh, without limitations of classes, then there's less incentive for you to replay, because you've already experienced all that the gameplay has to offer. Um, so, to conclude, I would say Starfield is a like a 7.5... 8 out of 10 kind of game. I think it's being a little overhated due to, I, I don't know if it's a timed exclusivity window or just it being exclusive to Microsoft platforms um, and people having super high expectations. I typically don't get caught up in pre-release hype, so I usually don't set unrealistic expectations. That's why I was able to enjoy a game like Cyberpunk 2077 at launch. Um, without any real hiccups or issues with that. And um, I enjoyed Starfield. It's one of the few sci-fi RPGs out there, like in the space opera kind of setting. And it is like the biggest sandbox type game in that regard. Like being able to build your ship and do ship combat and have all these different systems, outpost, planetary exploration. Like, none of them are super well refined, and I do think they would have benefited greatly from limiting the scope from thousands of planets to maybe a few dozen handcrafted planets. Um, and just kind of, I think that would have led to a slightly better experience, but they went for 
uh, breadth over depth, which is a choice, uh, not necessarily one that I agree with, but there are there are a lot of legitimately good and interesting quests in 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 the game, and I the idea that like it takes forever to get good is not true. Uh, within the first seven hours of gameplay, I got onto the UC Vanguard quest line and was investigating a distress call uh, that turned out to be a terror morph attack where you have to kind of cleverly defeat a terror morph. And that was all within seven hours of gameplay. So like you can, you can get into the thick of it real quick. Um, and like, I think all the faction quest lines are pretty good and pretty well written uh, for the most part. And um, I wish that there was a little more uh, choice in the game. Like I, I don't feel that you can really push back on certain ideas and your character's motivations seem to align with Constellation, even if you're not really role-playing as someone who would necessarily want Constellation. When I say motivations, like your dialogue choices really kind of push you in a certain direction all the time, and there's very little like ability to reject certain viewpoints. And um, you know, all your companions will kind of get on you if you do things in a slightly different manner, um, I just wish there was a little more ambiguity and role-playing in that regard. But overall, Starfield is a solid game that has some flaws, and I think it will be pretty good. Uh, it's pretty good to play right now, but I think it will be a very compelling experience uh, when we get into next year and full creation tools for mods are released. So I'm I'm looking forward to that, but for right now, I think I'm ready to put Starfield down for a bit and uh, go on to play some other things. But uh, I did enjoy my ride with it. I think it's a, it's a pretty solid game. If you're a big fan of sci-fi RPGs, uh, you'll like it. If you're a big fan of Bethesda games, you'll probably like it as well, uh, though you may be disappointed in certain aspects of it. I think overall it's a pretty well-made game, but um, it is what it is. It's, it doesn't always feel like a true next-gen experience, even though it comes with the uh, performance requirements and hardware requirements of a next-gen experience. But uh, those are my thoughts on Starfield. Uh, I know this review was a long time in the making. I've kind of touched on a lot of these points uh, supplementary before, but this is my full review of Starfield. I give it a seven out of ten. I would recommend it to to buy at. Uh, I think it's it's good at its full price point. I obviously I've spent well in excess of seventy hours on it. It's also on Game Pass. Uh, that's how I played it. Um, so for for fifteen bucks a month, I've had access to Starfield, and um, I've definitely it's been out for like what it's it came out in September and it's end of November. So it's been out for about two months. So I've paid about thirty bucks. Uh, for Starfield, and I've sunk, let's see, like, um, probably close to 100 hours. Let me pull up my calculator real quick here, uh, just to do that. So 4 times 24 is 96, plus another 15. Yeah, 111 hours I've sunk into this game. So clearly, uh, there's some something there to be had. Um, but I, I totally get people who bounced off Starfield after about 50 hours. Uh, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but 
I enjoyed it, and I think it's a pretty decently well-made game. So that's that's my portion of this Thanksgiving review, and I think that's going to wrap it up on this edition of the Saturday Studs podcast. Hope you all enjoyed our little experimental format here, and uh, until next time, be well, stay safe, and party like it's 1995.